The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Wonderful to be with you. Worship the Lord together. Let's pray. Need God's help as we come before his word. Let's ask the Lord for help. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God who speaks. Lord, you've designed us so beautifully, and you've told us what that design is. And yet, Lord, um, if we're honest as we come before this text today, it's incredibly controversial. It can be uh, difficult to understand, hard to accept. So, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would be here with us. Lord, please help me. Help me to teach this faithfully, clearly. Lord, most of all, I want to please you in what I say. But we all come before you, Lord, broken, in need of your truth, in need of Jesus Christ. And uh, we pray that in his name, the Holy Spirit, Lord, would speak to us. Give us open eyes, soft hearts, open ears to hear your word and to respond, Lord, for your glory and for our joy, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Did you know that when... Christianity exploded onto the scene. It was especially popular with women. Did you know that? Especially popular with women. In fact, those who were against Christianity would often use this popularity with women as an attack on Christianity. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin has recorded this in her book, Radio Quote, from her. Rebecca says, one second century Greek philosopher quipped that Christians want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, only slaves, women, and little children. Likewise, in the third century, Christianity was mocked for attracting the dregs of the populace and credulous women with the inability natural to their sex. How do you feel about that, ladies? Um, But you see the enemies of Christianity attacking Christianity for its popularity with women. Why? It's an interesting question. You know, if you were, um, it's it's very interesting to study Roman culture of the first, second, third century. Very interesting. And if you did that, you, would, you might find that if you were a free man in Greco-Roman society, your home would most likely be decorated with sexual images. Brothels full of women and young men are available to you and affordable for you. And of course, your slaves were continually available to you with their consent being no issue at all. That was the sexual norm of the time. Um, We have uh, the Greek statesman Demosthenes saying this, Demosthenes, what a guy. He says, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and be faithful guardians of our households. It's touching, isn't it? Well, you know, we're disgusted by that, and rightfully. It gets worse. The father of any child had complete say over whether or not that child lived. So, that, so we have a, a, an ancient letter from a Roman soldier to his wife from first century BC. It's otherwise affectionate, but it includes this instruction. He says, my dear, above all, if you bear a child and it is male, let it be. If it is female, cast it out. Okay? And that mother would have no choice but to expose her daughter. And that was the accepted culture of the time. This is the world into which Christianity had its beginning. Why was Christianity then so popular with women? Was it because Christianity tried to give women the same sexual freedom as these freeborn Greco-Roman men had? Is that what it was? No way. No way. It's because Jesus himself reestablished God's design in creation, and he treated women with incredible dignity and value as fellow image bearers of God. Read the Gospel of Luke. Moreover, his revolution continued with his apostle Paul. Now, sometimes people think 
Paul was a chauvinist, but I don't think you're listening if you think that. Paul said radical things like this. Paul said that in the church, any man leading the church must be an example to his church by being a one-woman man. You realize how radical that is? The culture of his day would have scoffed at the idea that a man would be devoted from the heart, in the mind, and the body to only his wife. They would think, that's not how you do that. That's ridiculous. It's repressive. Paul says, that is how we do this. Moreover, I'll, I'll read you this verse from 1 Corinthians 7, 4. Talk about being radical, countercultural. Paul said, for the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. And Greco-Roman culture would have been like, dang straight, okay? But now look at this. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Such words had never been spoken. The dignity of a woman in marriage to have claim on her husband in such a unique, intimate, covenantal way. All of these things raise the idea of the value of women in, in ways that have never, had never been seen before. So one reason I assert it, many assert it, one reason Christianity was so popular with women and continues to be so globally today, I will just tell you, one of the fa my favorite sermons I ever preached, I ever preached, was in India to, the low, to, to those of the low caste. It was all women. Because where are they ever going to hear that they are made in the image of God and valuable and worthy of dignity and respect? I'm telling you, it's only Christianity that says that. Christianity is the foundation of this. Christianity gives dignity and protection to women like nothing else the world has ever seen. And part of how Christianity did that and still does that is its teaching on marriage and sexuality. Absolutely. Now, of course, that does not mean that there aren't horrible stories of abuse of women in the church, uh, in the church and by Christians. Of course, there are horrible, horrible stories of this taking place. But just remember, right? There's a big difference between people claiming to be Christian and people actually being Christian. And isn't that what the text we're dealing with today is all about? The author is writing to people who claim to be Christian, and he's telling them what acceptable worship really looks like. They claim to be Christian, but this is what the real worship of the real God looks like. Uh, we remember everyone worships something, right? Everyone worships something, even you today. You should probably try to discern what that is. Uh, Roman society had its pagan polytheism. Today we have our idols of various kinds. The bottom line is you're going to serve what you worship, and you're going to serve it with your body. So Christians, we want to worship God according to his word. And that means we know something. We know worship is not something we invent. It's not based on how we feel ultimately. It's something we receive and submit to from the word of God. So last week, we, we started this conversation in this section. We saw some core aspects of worship that is acceptable to God. Most essential, and, and I hope if you only hear one thing today, this is what you hear. Most essential is worship happens through faith in Jesus Christ, okay? I'm gonna say things that, are probably gonna be controversial here in a little bit. And I may offend some of you. I want you to know ahead of time, I hate doing that. I don't especially like being controversial or offending people. I also want you to know that I stand here as a fellow sinner. I hope you know that nothing I say today is from a spirit of self-righteousness as if I'm the holy one who's got it all together and, and you wretched people need to figure it out. I, I don't believe that. And so that's why I love the best part of acceptable worship is coming to God through faith in Jesus Christ. We have all sinned against God. I'm the first one in line. I don't deserve his love or his kindness or the identity that he has given me. 
But we saw last week, acceptable worship starts with faith in Jesus Christ to be right with God, to be forgiven by God. You turn from your sin, you trust in him, and you are acceptable to him. And more than that, you're celebrated by him. You are loved by him because you wear his righteousness and his cross earned your forgiveness. Praise God. That's acceptable worship. Second, we saw we want hearts that are thankful and reverent. So Christians, our worship ought to have a heart of thanksgiving because God has been so good to us, right? Grace upon grace, we're thankful and reverent. We remember who our God is. He's holy. He's the judge of the earth. He hates sin. He will judge it. So we want to be reverent. We want to be careful. So we have this joyful seriousness in our worship. Third, last week we saw acceptable worship. It needs to involve our entire lives, right? What do people hate about Christianity? Well, it's full of hypocrites, people say, right? And uh, to an extent, we're like, well, that's me. I'm a hypocrite. That's why I'm here. I need Jesus. To another extent, there is an explicit way. It's gross, right? Where people claim Jesus and then don't live it out in their lives. And rightfully, we should say, no more. Well, and that's what the author of Hebrews is actually talking about right here. To, to serve, to really worship God, he, he said in verse 3, you want compassionate, familial, servant-hearted love for one another. How can you say you love God if you won't love your brother and sister? So all those things are part of acceptable worship. And today we just add one more verse to it. It's verse 4. And when you speak these words out loud, it's like they catch fire. Listen to this. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So uh, we preach right through the Bible. Most of the time here at Fountain of Life, that's what we do. And, and a major reason we do that is because we want to be honest. Okay? You deserve to know what the Bible actually says. God deserves for us to listen to all that he has said. And so that's what we do. And and so I want you to know I didn't pick this out especially for today. I want you to know that this came next because we're going through God's word. And now I want you to see what it means. Because even as you hear these words, we realize, right, many in our cultural moment would find these words to be dangerous. They would believe these words to be oppressive. They They would believe these ideas to be actually unjust. Many would say that. And yet our Bibles tell us that these words are an essential aspect of acceptable worship. This is a serious thing, and it's actually part of what what it means for us to truly love one another. That's what the motivation here. It's, It's fear of God, love for God, and it's love for our neighbor lived out according to God's word. And so we're supposed to honor marriage and its bed. So we have our work cut out for us, okay? I want to ask three questions and try to answer them. Uh, you, you probably have a lot of other questions. After I preach the sermon, I would love to talk with you uh, after the sermon about any questions or thoughts that you have. But here's the three questions we want to ask and answer. Number one, what is marriage and why should we honor it? Number two, what does it mean to honor marriage? Number three, what does it mean to honor the marriage bed? That's what we're going to ask and answer, and hopefully, even if you disagree, you'll get a good idea um, of what Christianity has said, is saying, and has always said, and will always will say about marriage. So we start with, you know, just the author saying, honor marriage, and, and the author can move on quickly because he has a shared understanding with his readers. They know what marriage is. In our day, can we make that assumption anymore? We, we can't make that assumption. So we have to ask the question, what is marriage? Sometimes I'll ask that to people in premarital counseling even or, or relationships. What is marriage? And it takes a while to think about it, right? And, and you kind of start with, well, when two people love each other, and then, and then it fades out. And you're like, come on, it's got to be more than that, right? It's got to be more than that. So, so what is it? How do we know? How do we know? And so for Christians, that how we know question, that's everything. How do you know the the Answer to the biggest questions of life. Well, we go to the Bible as our authority. How do we know? So let's go to the words of Jesus and let's actually see what he said about what marriage is. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. And there it's very interesting. In Matthew 19, 3, Pharisees come up to Jesus and test him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? 
This is interesting because here you have religious conservatives, hardcore conservatives of the day, and, and what do they want a loophole for? How do I get out of this marriage I don't like, <laughs> okay? How can, how can I squeeze out of this thing? And so Jesus, look at his response. Look at verse 4. Jesus Christ, this is what he said. He answered, have you not read? First of all, I love that question. Anytime Jesus asks Pharisees, have you, have you read the Bible? That's funny because they, they thought they were experts on the Bible. <laughs> have you not read? But it shows you where's Jesus looking for his answer on what marriage is. He's looking to God's word himself. He's looking to the first two chapters of Genesis. That's where Jesus is looking as a Christian. That should be profound to you, okay? Have you not read? He refers to Genesis 1 to 2. And then we see, we get our definition of marriage from God's created order. It's before sin, it's before brokenness. We see God made marriage. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So we'll just, we'll just leave that, those verses up there. I want you to see what I think are five things Jesus says about God's definition of marriage, okay? Number one, it's pretty obvious to, to see that marriage is instituted and confirmed by God. He made it. God made it. God put it together, and God even said, this is, what, this is what's up. This is how it is. God instituted it. Not, not only that, look at verse 6. I mean, it's very, it's very intimate, actually. It's not that he just made it in this abstract way, far away. When two people get married, he joins you together. I mean, he's, he's really close in this. He's joined you as one flesh. There's this new union of people. And so Jesus is able to say, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So this is, he's confronting hardcore these for Pharisees, aren't they? You claim to love God, and you want to fool around with this and mess with this and make it easier? You're against God in how you're doing this. That's what Jesus is saying to them. You're against God because God has joined you together. Wow. Marriage is instituted and confirmed by God himself. Second, marriage is not just a contract but a covenant. It's not just a contract. It's a covenant, contract. Hey, I agree, I'll do this for a while, you do this for a while. It's far more than that. It's a sober, serious swearing of yourself to someone else. It makes you one flesh, two become one. It's a covenant. Number three, it's exclusive. A man leaves his father and mother. In Jewish culture, your father and mother as your primary relationships, not anymore, not when you get married. Moving out, now you cleave to your wife. Do you see how this already raises the value of a woman? Young man, you're leaving the family, and now your number one value, treasure, orientation is to this woman you are marrying. Become a new family unit. So the man becomes a husband to one woman who is his wife, and no one else in that way. And a woman becomes a wife to the one man who is her husband. No one else in that way. It's exclusive, right? I love all my sisters. You guys are the greatest ladies I know. I don't love any of y'all like I love my wife. And aren't you glad? You're like, praise the Lord, okay? But it's exclusive. It's for, it's for one person. Now, some of you are thinking, hold on now. I read the Old Testament once, and I saw a lot of polygamy. Yes, you did. Read it again. How does it look? It looks terrible. Was it ever God's design? It was never God's design. It's a sign to show you how terrible and awful it is. This is God's design. It's exclusive. Number four, it's lifelong. Marriage is lifelong. It's related to the covenant idea, but it's worth mentioning. Because the Pharisees want this, they, they want a system to offer a little convenience. Some scholars say, some, there are different Pharisaical parties. I don't understand all of it. Some of them would say, if your wife didn't give you children, you could divorce her. Some of them would say, if your wife burnt breakfast, you could divorce her. And then they'd be like, well, let's get a certificate. 
and make it all religious. Okay? And Jesus is disgusted by that. He's disgusted by that idea. It's lifelong. That's why in our vows we say, till death do us part, for better or worse. Right? You know, I'll ruffle a few feathers. Historian Carl Truman suggests marriage really began to be redefined in our country, not when the Supreme Court made its decision about gay marriage, but when California Governor Ronald Reagan signed no-fault divorce into law. Why would he say that? Number one, I want to be clear. There, there is such a thing as biblical grounds for divorce. That's so important. There are biblical grounds for a divorce. There are times when a divorce is right. But those biblical grounds for divorce actually protect what marriage is supposed to be. Okay? When you do no-fault divorce, what are you now taking out of the definition of marriage? Lifelong. You've remade it now. You've messed with it. You've, you've, taken something, you've taken something essential out of it. Just like if you take anything else out of it. Instituted and confirmed by God, marriage is a serious covenant. It's exclusive. It's lifelong. And, and now here's really the, the hot issue. Marriage is complementary. Jesus is very clear. It's a joining of one man and one woman. A man is an adult male human being. And you guys, I don't mean to make jokes about this, but evidently it is now a matter of some questioning as to just what a woman is. I don't want to dive into political pandering, but I think it's important. There are even secular feminists who are very concerned about this very thing, okay? What is a woman? Because if you can't or won't define it, how can you celebrate or protect it? You can't. You can't. And isn't it interesting that some of the same people who won't define what a woman is, they won't define what a baby is either. It's concerning. It's concerning. So, hey, a woman is an adult female human being. And marriage is between a man and a woman. You know, I think, and a lot of people are saying this, we have the same problem today that they did in the first and second centuries in Rome. Yes, it's not as extreme in a lot of ways. It shows itself in different ways. But our culture demeans the value of women. And marriage, as we see here, marriage is complementary. It's between one man and one woman. And this same but different aspect, right? Same but different. Made in the image of God. Same, human, same, different. Male, female, same but different. The same but different aspect to marriage is the, is the fundamental structure of human society, because marriage here, in this way, offers unique companionship. It offers sexual intimacy and pleasure. And if it's God's will, the creation and rearing of children. Isn't it amazing? This would be amazing to us. The complementary aspect of marriage gives life itself. It gives life itself. And marriage offers the best context for the raising and the benefit of children. So, what is marriage? God instituted it. It's a covenant. It's exclusive. It's lifelong. It's complementary. That's what Jesus says. And Jesus says, if you take those things out of marriage, you are messing with God and what he has made. And it's not acceptable worship. Why does God care so much about this? I want to I see one more picture of why it's so important. Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul refers to the same passage in Genesis that Jesus did, and it points to something greater than just human marriage. Here's just a, a brief picture of Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. And what's the, what's the key phrase? It's next. As Christ loved the church and gave, him up, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God instituted marriage mainly, though it has wonderful human benefits, he instituted marriage mainly to highlight the gospel by which he saves us. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. So in the marriage covenant, the wife becomes a husband who takes on the role of displaying Jesus to the world and how he treats his wife. Lord, have mercy on me. 
And with the, the covenant of marriage, the, the woman becomes a wife and takes on the role of displaying a picture of God's church who loved Jesus in how she treats her husband. And, you know, this wonderfully puts marriage in its place. First of all, obviously, marriage is incredibly valuable. It's valuable. If you love Jesus and what he's done for you, how can you not value marriage, which is a picture of Jesus and what he's done for you? How can anyone who loves the gospel do that? Marriage is valuable, but we also learn it's just as important. Human marriage is not ultimate. It's not ultimate. It's not ultimate. Did you know there will be no human marriage in heaven? There will be no human marriage in heaven. We will have graduated and be able to understand and enjoy the ultimate marriage, which is what? The bride of Christ, God's people, with her wonderful husband, Jesus Christ himself. That's the ultimate marriage, which means we need to be careful. Human marriage, yes, it's to be valued and honored. No, it's not to be worshiped as the thing that will complete you. Some of you are longing to get married. This is great. I hope you have a great, godly marriage, and it won't satisfy you, okay? It won't complete you. It was never meant to complete you. Only Jesus can complete you, which also means you are not subhuman or sub-Christian or missing out on life if you're not married. You're not missing out on life if you're not married. Look, is marriage marriage a great thing? Yes, and if you long for a godly marriage, I hope and pray you receive it. In our lives, there are gonna be many, many great things that we hope and long for that we will not receive, right? Only Jesus can satisfy you. It's fascinating to realize that neither of these champions of marriage, Jesus or Paul, guess what? Neither of them were married. Unbelievable. Huge champions of marriage, strong, bold, and not married. That tells you something. Godly singleness glorifies the gospel too. Just in some different ways. Our brothers and single uh, sisters who are single, and by the way, we're all going to be single, right? Before or after marriage. This is normal for Christians. Single Christians glorify the gospel too as they are devoted to that ultimate marriage that we will all share. Union with Jesus Christ in heaven forever. So let's just reject, make sure you reject a lot of these arguments that our culture makes come from this assumption that your identity flows from your sexual expression. Can you hear that? They're telling you your identity flows from your sexual expression. So you should identify that or invent that and then live that out. Otherwise, you're not being you. Why do we believe that foolishness? Why do we believe that? It's not true. And especially as a Christian, what's your identity? What is your identity? You are a child of God through Jesus Christ. That's your identity. So God instituted marriage to be a picture of the gospel. Like marriage, the gospel is a covenant. Think about that. It's a covenant. Jesus covenanted himself to us and we to him. Two, the gospel is exclusive. Jesus has one lady. And that's the church, the people who come to him in repentance and faith. Number three, the gospel, well, that's not just lifelong. That's eternity long. Number four, the gospel is complementary. Yes, it is. Same but different. Is Jesus the same as us? Amazingly the same. He took on human flesh. Is he different? He's the eternal son of God. And union with him, does that bring new life? Yes, it does. Eternal life. Marriage is a God-designed, lifelong, exclusive covenant between a man and a woman that glorifies the gospel. That's what it is. That's what it is. And so then we get to our, our... our second point, acceptable worship honors marriage. You know, look at verse four again. If you, if you try to read it in Greek, a wooden translation just helps you feel it. The first word is hold it in honor. Marriage is the second word, by all. It's, it's, it's strong, honor it. Honor what? Marriage, who? All of you. Honor means see it as a, a, a great precious value. Hold it dearly. And you'll see it's not optional. 
It's not for traditional Christians. It's for Christians. How do we honor it? How do we honor it? Well, this could be a long conversation. But I think one aspect is you got to hold to what God has made in a, in a, in a cultural climate that denies it. You, you've got to hold to what God has made in a cultural climate that denies it. Isn't that what our brothers and sisters of old had to do? When they, when they had to say to those men who would visit church, hey, bro, one wife, exclusive devotion, knock it off with everybody else. No more brothels, no more slaves. No, knock it off. One wife. Do you think the culture was like, oh, we've seen our, our sinful ways? You know? No, it was hard for them. It was difficult to receive. But that's what they had to say. And so the same for us. That's what we have to say. We have different ways. We have to ponder this and talk about this. And obviously, I can't go into detail on, on all of this at all this morning. But, but think of the mantra, love is love. I think logically that takes you to the proposition that marriage is just an agreement between any two people that love each other. Listen, there are, there are many precious and valuable ways we are to love. There's parental love. There's church family love. There's friendship love. Did you know this was most precious to Jesus in his humanity? Friendship love. Look what Jesus said, John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this that he get married. No, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Friendship can and should be deeply close and intimate and life-giving. Friendship is, un, is disregarded too much in this world. But that does not mean we are to add sexual practice to every kind of relationship. For Christians, 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. God is love. And so much of the debate about love is, is not should we love? Everybody's like, yeah, love. The question is, how do we love? How do we love? It's a hard question. It takes wisdom. But ultimately, you're going to come down to a religious conviction, whether you are a Christian or not. You will come down to a religious conviction about what love is supposed to look like. And I would just ask you, test, test your authority. Who are you believing when you believe something? And when you see who Jesus is, when you love him, when you trust him, and you hear his word, we realize that sexuality is in God's invention for marriage. That's what it's for. And we've seen what that definition of marriage is. Stand for marriage. Another thing, and I'm sorry to, I am sorry to say this. Our culture now believes cohabitation is a great option instead of marriage. Fewer and fewer and fewer people are getting married. What's happening when we do that? What's happening? We're taking the idea of covenant out of the context, right? I don't want to cheapen what's happened. I'm not saying you don't love each other, you don't care each other, you're not committed to each other. I'm not saying it. But there is a sense in which it's... Um, we're not sure how long this will go. It doesn't have the I'm yours and you're mine till death aspect to it, does it? And yet it's mightily powerful, and we can see why. It's, it's more convenient. It, it seems to make less risk. And yet the stats will tell you if you live together before married, guess what your, guess what your chances are greater of when you get married? Your, your chances are greater to get a divorce. And why do you think that would be? We started out without covenant. But now we finally get to the author's main point. I don't know if he'd be thinking of any of the things I said to you already. He really wants you to honor marriage in your own heart and your life, right? And mar marriage is a wonderful, a joyful thing. And, and some of you are happy that I'm trying to stand for biblical truth here. But now we all sit here and remember, you know, sometimes it's easier to argue for the doctrine of marriage than actually do a good job at being married when we go home. You know, fight for truth. What are you going to do when you go home? Do you honor marriage? And so we just, we just remember, let's, let's let our best argument for Christian marriage be our marriages. 
If you're a husband and you are married, your wife is your first human priority. Do you act like that? Do you lean into that? Do you care about that? Is your goal to look like Jesus in how you treat this woman? And even as I say this, I'm like ready to dodge the lightning, okay? Because I'm flawed. I'm flawed as a husband. I'm so flawed. Grow in being a Christ-like husband. If you're a wife, are you a wife? Do you have a husband? Lean into spotlighting the heart of God's people for Jesus Christ and how you respect and love and help your husband. That's what it means to honor marriage. Are you married? Be married. And remember, God put your marriage together. God put it together. And honoring it is part of your acceptable worship. You know, it's easy to neglect our marriages for our kids, isn't it? Everybody with young kids is like, nobody agrees? I didn't get one amen. <laughs> Y'all are better at this than I am. One of the best things you can do for your children is show them a healthy marriage. They need that more than they need your instantaneous attention. They need to see a healthy marriage. And if your marriage has ended, which happens in a sinful world, God loves you, God forgives you, God heals you, you're glad you're here, you're you're not second class, I'm a sinner too. If your marriage has ended, you still want to teach your children of a healthy marriage as best you can and prepare them for healthy marriage because we honor marriage. Also, we wanna be supportive of the marriages of others. You know, godliness is difficult, isn't it? Is it hard to be single? Yeah. Is it hard to be married? Yeah, Okay. Do we, have, do, we have, do we have singles living happy, peaceful, content lives? Yes. Do we have married people deeply struggling? Yes. We need to support one another and encourage one another. We need godly friends to help us be single or be married. We want to support marriage. We encourage one another. We want you to get help when you need it. We want to care about your marriage. And my best, most loving friends are the ones who encourage me to better love my wife. All right, let's get to the third point. What have we seen so far? What marriage is? What should we do with it? Honor it. Now we honor the marriage bed. Verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. What's the marriage bed? It's a polite way to say sex, right? That's what it is. It's sex. What's the Christian view on sex? Sex is a a wonderful gift from God, a wonderful gift from God. Christian thought does not see whatever you may have seen in the world. Christian thought does not see sex as dirty or gross. No, Christian thought does not cheapen sex. It values sex all the more and wants it protected. God made it and he wants it protected. And here's why. Sex is the body making covenant. It's like the sacrament of your marriage. It's the way you feel it and, experience, and, and kind of seal it. You be, be one, one flesh physically to show that you're one flesh in every other way. Sex is the body saying, I'm all yours. I see you as you are and I love and embrace you. I'm one with you for life and I really enjoy this. That's what it's saying. And by the way, science agrees. Chemicals are released that enhance trust, commitment, intimacy. So if it's true that that's God's design for sex, then how do you defile it? Well, you just, you just disregard its design. You, you don't treat it in the way that it's been made because sex is something where we cheapen it by misusing it. Isn't that true? Don't you know that? I know that in my heart. Um, sex is something we cheapen by misusing it. So defiling the marriage bed is sexual activity outside of marriage. You know, if if you've ever looked at pornography before, how many of you walked away and just thought, boy, I value women so much more now? How many of you walked away saying, oh, I'm I'm so full of integrity and dignity now? You know how how it feels. Why is the common word when we counsel folks like this dirty? Dirty. We know what we've done. I know what I've done in my heart. 
I took something beautiful and I threw it in the mud. That, that's, the, that's the Christian attitude here. And it starts with the heart. I'm gonna take you to a couple passages now. I don't nearly have time to unpack all these. I just want you to see highlights from each, all right? We think about what it means to honor the marriage bed. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter five. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And we should pause here just for a second because all, all the religious right-wingers are here going, amen, that's right. I've never been with a woman that wasn't my wife. And then Jesus is like, I'm gonna drop the mic on you, okay? Verse 28, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus does not just want an external obedience. Holiness is taking obedience all the way into what you love and what you think about. And now that we have said this, how many among us are adulterers? Okay, right here, according to this passage, right here. And look what Jesus says. He doesn't cast you out or reject you. He invites you to repentance, but he's, he's, he's not being literal here in verse 29. We know that, but he is being serious. Look what he says. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Now, none of us are wearing eye patches today, okay? We don't, we don't see. In fact, the literal, it wouldn't actually help you. You go down to one eye, then you go down to no eyes, and then your, your brain is still a problem. It, that's not a road we want to follow, but what he is saying is these, these roads and these pathways that take you to adultery in the heart. Fight them off if you belong to Jesus. Fight them off. He counts your mind and your heart as important. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. He's, he's saying the same thing this verse in Hebrews is saying, isn't he? From the heart, I'll show you another picture. We wanna be pure, not just in the heart and in the mind, but in our relationships. Here's 1 Thessalonians 4. Remember, Paul's, Paul's writing in the midst of that Greco-Roman culture. We know what they like. Look at what he says to these new Christians. We know what, in, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This is the will of God, your sanctification. What, what does God want for you, church? He wants you to be sanctified. He wants you to be set apart to God through Jesus Christ. He wants you like Jesus and how you think of what you love. This is God's will for you, your sanctification. And part of that, especially in a pagan Greco-Roman culture, that you abstain from what? Sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So you belong to Jesus, now you want to use your body in a way that delights the heavenly Father, not in the passion of the lust of the, like the Gentiles who what? What's that phrase there? They don't know God. And look at verse six, that no one transgress his and wrong his brother in this matter. You see what Paul actually uses here in this last, sentence, in, in this last verse, verse six, he actually uses words like of, of fraud, so, so when you engage in, in sex outside of marriage, you're actually stealing or taking advantage of the other person. You're, you're stealing from or taking advantage of the other person for selfish gain. Why would he say that? Again, it's because of the design of what sex is. If sex is the body making covenant saying, I'm totally yours forever, but then you say with your body, I'm sort of yours for a little bit, you're lying and you're taking something that doesn't actually belong to you. That's what he's saying. And you get the same warning. Look, look at the end of this passage. The verse continues, verses six and seven. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. God hates it when we defraud or steal or oppress other people. And, and this part's included. The Lord is the avenger in all these things. We told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has called us not for impurity, but holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, dis disregards not man, but who? God. One more. So we've seen we, we want purity from the heart. We want purity in our relationships. We want purity in our practice. Here's 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. You know, and, if I, and I think, man, it's controversial to say what I'm saying. It is. I think of Paul writing these words in first century Corinth. Corinth, Corinth was a sexual madhouse. Of, of what they would, we would, we would be, we would not be happy with so much of what was normal in Corinth. 
And for Paul to write this to Christians in Corinth in that day, so countercultural. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither is sexually immoral, the idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves or the greedy or drunkards or revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Something so important to see here, I think. Obviously, the Bible is saying sex outside of marriage is a sin. Is it the only sin? No. Did you see the list? Did he, was he like category A, really bad sins? Category B, not such a big deal sins. Did you see that here? Why, why do we act like that? No, it's, it's a sin, and it's one of the sins. But how are you going to live as a Christian? And the issue here is practice. Practice. What's your lifestyle? Because look at what Paul says in verse 11. I love this verse. Such were some of you. How many of you have been idolaters? You, you loved other gods than Jesus. Come on, that, that is sin, okay? That's me. How many of you have been sexually immoral? If not with the body, then in the mind and the heart. That, that's us. How many of you have had desires that don't necessarily align with God's word and they were strong and powerful desires? In fact, you're still fighting them today. How about all of us? Okay? How many of you have been selfish and, and misused God's gifts to the hurt of other people? All of us. But look at the glory of the gospel here in verse 11. Such, what's that next word? Were some of you. It's not you anymore. Those desires do not define your identity. It's not you anymore. In fact, now that you've come to Christ, you were washed. That you've been made clean of all your sin. Uh, we, we know the shame that comes with some of this stuff. And so, it's so beautiful to realize in God's sight, you're washed as you trust Christ. You're clean. You were sanctified. You were made holy and precious to God himself. You were justified. You were declared righteous in the name of Jesus Christ. You have a new identity. And so the glory here is no matter what you have done in your life and with your body, Jesus will completely and totally redeem you if you come to him. Total forgiveness, total cleansing, total, total acceptance. And so as we think about acceptable worship, it includes, it's not the only thing, this is what we're thinking about this morning, it includes what? Honoring marriage. Yes, understanding what it is, honoring it, and honoring the marriage bed, honoring sexuality. It's part of acceptable worship. But even as we hear about it, we all realize we need to go back to the first step of acceptable worship. What is it? Come to Jesus. <laughs> Come to Jesus. Because I find myself, as I read this passage, I need to repent. I, I haven't always loved God, loved my wife, loved my kids, loved my neighbor. I need to repent. And maybe you feel that way too. And Jesus invites us to, to repent and to realize that no one in Christ is ever a secondhand citizen. Do you hear that? No one in Christ is ever a secondhand citizen. There's only one kind of righteousness Christians have, and it's Christ's, which is perfect. There's only one kind of forgiveness Christians receive, and it's complete and total. There, there is no such thing as the, well, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You? <laughs> that does not exist in Christianity. You are in Christ or you are out. And if you are in Christ, then all of Christ is yours. And you are right with God, even right now. You're forgiven. Praise God. Praise God. So in conclusion, we want to repent and look to Jesus. And then we just want to honor Jesus with our minds, our mouths, and our bodies, don't we? We want to honor him. Because as Christians, as the way we started, we have the joy of being right with God through Jesus, enjoying fellowship with him, and in the joy of offering worship that is pleasing to the Father with all we are. So as we do this, you know, we start thinking, oh, Christianity, it's repressive, it's straitjacket. You know what? Actually, it's for your good. 
This is for your good. This is for your joy. I'll close again with, with another quote from uh, Rebecca McLaughlin. Christianity, or Rebecca says things like this will actually be good for women. Here's just a selection of what she wrote. She said, Christian marriage has long been seen by secular liberals as a repressive institution designed to hold women down. In 2016, a study of women in America found that highly religious women married to highly religious men were by far the happiness. Isn't that ironic? Ironically, the demographic most pitied by secular progressive women in religious marriages are happier than those who pity them. Conversely, and this is the part that breaks your heart, because think of what our culture teaches our young women. Conversely, multiple studies have shown that for women in particular, increasing our number of sexual partners correlates with worse mental health, including higher levels of sadness, suicidal ideation, depression, and drug abuse. There's a reason Christianity is really popular with women. Because Jesus validates and demands celebration and protection marriage and of sexuality, childbearing, and all the rest. Friends, let's come to Christ and let's offer acceptable worship, especially how we view marriage and sexuality. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, tough word. We're all confronted. I'm confronted. Um, we, just, we just pray for your help as we, as we ponder these things, Lord. I know there's many questions I've left unanswered many concerns we would still wonder about. But we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just lead and guide us to Jesus, help us see him, his glory, his wisdom, what he's done, his goodness, his trustworthiness as the one who gave himself up for us, for we, the undeserving. And Lord, I pray that we would be fastidious in honoring you as fellow sinners, honoring you and honoring your creation of marriage and the marriage bed. We ask this for your glory and our joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.